Well, heavy subject this morning uh, as we continue in our series in the Psalms. Most of us here this morning are familiar with these words. We've heard them many times. On the night he was betrayed. We've heard that phrase over and over again as we have come to approach the communion table, reflecting on the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. And of course, we know that his suffering wasn't just physical, that that suffering included the fact that he was betrayed by one of his own inner circle. And betrayal is one of the most devastating forms of emotional pain that a human being can experience. And the closer the relationship that is betrayed, the more painful it gets. At its core, betrayal is a violation of trust. It breaks something sacred, a promise, whether that's spoken or unspoken, it breaks a promise between friends to love each other, to support each other, to uplift each other, and to protect each other. And yet, we find that it can be taken away in a moment. And when that happens, when that trust is violated, if you've been there, you know it, it, it sort of knocks the wind out of your lungs. It can be so painful. It can put you on the path towards despair. It will affect you physically, your, affect your health. It will affect your focus, your sleep. And sometimes it will produce emotional scars on your heart that at times you feel like, I may never, ever heal from this. Consider a good friend who you spent years with who you have shared special moments in life together, but later that friend turns against you with, with gossip and with slander. Or even worse, somebody with whom you've exchanged marital vows. You've entered into the sacred covenant of marriage, the most intimate of all earthly unions, but out of nowhere you discover that this, this person who made these vows has had an affair or decides to simply walk away from those vows altogether, and the result of that is a life-shattering divorce. It's betrayal. A friend at church, someone who you thought was a genuine believer, somebody you served alongside and you, you worshiped with on Sundays, later not only falls away from the faith, but abandons your friendship completely and acts like your relationship never, ever even mattered to them. A mentor who once you, you put your trust in, someone you looked up to, someone who gave you wise counsel, maybe even a leader in the church, but then for whatever reason, you begin to notice some ugliness in their character, and when you go to point it out to them, they respond with a hostile spirit, and they break fellowship with you. Or maybe you once served in ministry yourself, maybe even full-time pastoral ministry, and you did everything possible during that time to faithfully love and serve the sheep in your church, but in spite of your best efforts, which are always imperfect, a group of congregants band together behind your back to condemn you publicly and then leave the church and break away with grumbling hearts and vocal criticism. It's heartbreaking to have to admit this, but betrayal among Christians is not all that uncommon to our shame. Scheming, lies, grumbling, gossip, slander, power plays. If you hang around the church long enough, you will see all of it come to pass. And these things destroy. These things destroy families. They sever longtime friendships. They split churches. They cause young believers to begin to doubt what they believe. And they give good cause to the world to mock us, to mock the church and to disrespect our Lord. Now, why does it happen? Well, from my experience, it's a lethal mix of a whole bunch of things, of spiritual warfare and self-centeredness and a lack of humility, 
plus worldly thinking and fleshly desires, and all it takes then is a match, and boom, it happens. And why does it hurt so much when it happens? Well, because life in the body is personal. Life in the body is emotional. We should admit that. The reason the people in the church have the power to hurt us the most is because they're the people that we love the most. We share time together. We share fellowship. We share service and affection like a family because in Christ we are family. And so it's very painful. Have you ever, have you ever stopped and really read uh, the story of Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20? To me, it's one of the most emotional parts of the entire New Testament. It'll make me cry if I stop and think about it long enough. And you guys know how easy that is these days <laughs> as I get older. But it really is. You hear in Luke's account how deep the bonds of ministry are between these men, and that's what makes saying goodbye so, so emotional and difficult. Just sit back and listen. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to what Luke writes. This is from Acts chapter 20. Paul sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, you know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. I was with you. I was in the fight, in the battle, with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with tears, and during the trials that came upon us. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Imagine that. Brothers, how we went around preaching the kingdom, suffering together and rejoicing together. I'll not see you again. And he ends, be on guard for yourselves. For all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with what? With tears. Ministry in the church is emotional and it's personal. And Paul finishes, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. And after he said this, he knelt down. And he prayed with all of them. And there were many tears shed by everyone. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. I don't know why I'm doing this. But that is the range of emotions you experience when you minister with others in the church. When you pour your heart into fellow believers, when you walk through the joys and the sorrows of life together, when you battle discouragement, when you celebrate the victories and always pressing forward in the strength of God's spirit. And as Paul says here, together preaching the kingdom with both tears and with trials. When I went into full-time ministry 23 years ago, this was my hope and expectation in ministry. And I knew it wouldn't be easy, 
But you can ask Tanya, I was also naive enough to believe that everybody in the church wanted the same thing. That everybody in the church was on the same mission, that we'd all be rowing together in the same direction, and why would there be conflict? We're in this together. I was so naive. The one thing I hadn't planned on was betrayal. When I looked at my employment contract in the first church I worked in, there was nothing in there about betrayal. Looking back, I don't know why I was surprised when it actually happened to me. How many different ways in the Bible does God describe that people are prone to this, right? It's everywhere. As one theologian cynically puts it, quote, betrayal pulses through the scriptures from the beginning to the end. It's the dark catalyst for the entire story of God's redemption. So it should be no surprise to us that betrayal lurks in churches. If God's people will betray God, why would we not betray each other? That's heavy stuff, isn't it? Good, grab your Bibles. <laughs> We're gonna go to Psalm 55, and I'm gonna try to recover. Psalm 55. David has something to say about this very subject. I'm gonna do something a little bit unusual this morning. Rather than just plow through it from verse one to the end, I'm gonna take the verses somewhat out of order so that we can fully understand how David lays out this betrayal, how it unfolds before our eyes. So we're actually going to start in verse 12. But actually, you know what? First, let's look at the superscription that's at the top of the psalm. Right? We've been doing this each and every time. Once again, the psalm was written for who? The choir, that worship leader guy. Right? The choir director. And for stringed instruments, which you saw on the stage this morning. Isn't that exciting? And like last week's psalm, we see it's a masculine of David, which means that it was written uh, for our wisdom, for our instruction. And as you see on the screen there, uh, up above, I've categorized it as a lament psalm for good reason. David's going to lament over the situation he finds himself in. Okay, drop down to verse 12 now. Listen to David explain who has betrayed him. Verse 12, for it is not an enemy... Catch that now, not an enemy who reproaches me or insults me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has who is exalted himself or who rises up against me. Then I could hide myself from him. Verse 13, but it is, it is you. Now he doesn't name names, does he? He doesn't give us a name here, but it's clear he has a specific person in mind. It is you, a man my equal, or my peer. So this must be somebody who is at least high up in Israel's ruling class. My companion, my familiar or close friend. And that sort of certainly limits the possibilities of who we're talking about. This is somebody that's very close to the very king of Israel. Verse 14, we who had sweet fellowship together and walked in the house of God in the midst of the crowd. So this is somebody who was once closely aligned with David, a good friend, a fellow worshiper. They appear to have shared life together as companions and their fellowship had been sweet. So how did that go wrong? Now for some reason this man has risen up against him with reproaches, with taunts, and with insults. And as David says here, look, you can expect that from an enemy, right? And you can brace yourself if an enemy like that comes against you. Anybody that hates you, you're like, okay, I'm on guard against that. But, 
man, what a shock when it's a friend. That's why I say it, it sort of takes the, the air out of your lungs. It's so shocking when a friend come, comes against you, a trusted friend. It's a, it's a shock to the system. So what is the historical background here? What's actually going on? Well, that, that question has been studied and debated for millennia now. And um, because David doesn't name names, wouldn't it have been nice if he'd given us a name? And, and there's no context in the superscription either. We can't be sure. But based on what we see of David's life in scripture, there's a couple logical possibilities here. And for me, the suspect who makes the most sense is a man whose name I hate to say, Ahithophel. There it is. Ahithophel, right? Whose story you find in 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 17. And in fact, there's actually a long tradition among the Jewish Targums that this indeed is the backdrop for Psalm 55, that this is the man in question. So let me paint for you just a quick picture of who he was and exactly what he did. In 2 Samuel 15, we're told that David's rebellious son, Absalom, right? had set himself up as king in Hebron, opposing his father. And he began to raise an army expecting to march on Jerusalem and depose his father, imagine. And so this was a bold move, right, by the young man. What he's gonna do is he is going to, the text says, Absalom sent for David's advisor, Ahithophel. Now that's bold, right? He sends a messenger to the very palace in Jerusalem to one of David's closest friends and advisors and says, basically, join me in my rebellion. Come to Hebron, and together we will march on Jerusalem. And the text continues. So the conspiracy grew strong, and the people supporting Absalom continued to increase. Then an informer came to David and reported, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Now imagine the pain that must have, for the king of Israel to realize his people have turned against him and they're now going over to his rival and that rival happens to be his own flesh and blood. Try, just try to imagine the pain of betrayal that this must have created in David. And then we find out that this rebellion is growing so quickly that David and his family and his servants and his closest friends are literally forced to evacuate, evacuate Jerusalem and run for their lives. The text says David was climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he ascended, his head covered. He's walking barefoot. And all the people with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they ascended. And then comes this bit of shattering news. It's already bad enough. Someone, it says, this text says, came to David and reported to him, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Imagine hearing that news. Of all people, not him. That, that cannot be true. My, my trusted friend is with Absalom. With David and his entourage out of the city, chapter 16, and tells us Absalom and all the Israelites, they came to Jerusalem. David, of course, is gone. And Ahithophel is with them. And then Absalom said to him, give me your advice. What should we do? So this is, a, this is David's close friend and advisor, and now Absalom, who is now taking him into this rebellion, says, hey, what, what should I do next? Here's what he says. Ahithophel replied, sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. When all Israel hears that you become repulsive to your father 
everyone with you will be encouraged. What kind of backwards, wicked advice is that? I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? But then it gets worse in chapter 17. The text says, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me, let me choose 12,000 men and I will set out in pursuit of David tonight. I will attack him while he's weary and discouraged, throw him into a panic, and all the people with him will scatter. I will strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. Whew. Imagine that. I will go for you. I will hunt down the king, my friend, and I will murder him and draw the people back to you. Absolute, total, 100%, the ugliest of betrayals. It doesn't get worse than this. Now, if this is the correct historical background, it's likely that David wrote Psalm 55 while he was out in the wilderness gathering an army and waiting for Absalom's army to come and attack him. That this was the time he sat down to pen his anguished thoughts over what he's going through in this situation. So this is a very dramatic moment as we read. So now let's go back up to verse one. That's gonna help us understand the language that he uses at the beginning of this psalm. Go back to verse one. Listen to David pray. And as we do this, I want you to think about your own prayer life. Is this how you pray? Here's what he says. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication or from my, my plea for help. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I am surely distracted or in turmoil. Why? Verse 3, because of the voice or the words of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. So at the beginning of the prayer, we see David has absolutely no peace. And we understand why, right? It appears he's feeling a distance between himself and the Lord. And we've seen this before in the Psalms, right? David feels like he can survive anything as long as he, he senses the presence and the power of the Lord with him. But now he senses a distance. And he is struggling in prayer. He's struggling. He's restless. He's in turmoil. He is feeling this weight of oppression from these voices they're coming from those who now oppose him. Verse four, my heart is in anguish within me and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me or grip me and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and the tempest. Now, notice how graphic his language is here. By the way, we're gonna walk through sort of his progression as we go. Notice how graphic his language is here. Terrors of death, fear and trembling, overwhelming horror. It shows how real this is, how, how much David is despairing in his emotions at this point. He knows that his life is literally hanging in the balance. So you combine two of the greatest stressors you'll ever experience in life. Number one, I've been brutally betrayed. And number two, I could die tonight. This could be the end of me. You can imagine how easy it would be to fall into this state, a state of self-pity where you begin to turn inward, radically inward, and you let anguish consume your heart and let it gnaw away at that, your sense of peace and security. He's a mess right now. 
What happens when you allow yourself to spiral down in this way towards self-pity and despair? Well, one of the reactions you see here is escapism. That's one of the natural reactions of the flesh is to say, if I could just fly away like a dove and disappear and make all of this go away, David says. And really, when he talks about the wilderness, it's, it's as if he's saying, if I could go back to a simpler time in my life, back out into the wilderness, away from all the pressures of, the, of Jerusalem and the kingship, and, and just go back to those days, I'd find comfort and rest from all of this fear and all of this pain. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I can identify with this. Are there not times when you're just like, I just want to get away? I just want to, I want peace from this fallen world. It just, it's beating me up and I'm broken. And I just want to shut out the pressures of life. I find it so interesting in the scriptures how, how a, a man like David, he doesn't hold back, does he? He's so real, right? And we can identify with, these are heroes of the faith. You see it in Elijah, you see it in Jeremiah, you see it with David, they're human, they are fallible like you and I. But because of that, they also provide for us a roadmap to overcome these things. And that's why this, this psalm is so important. Now, as we come to verse nine, we find ourselves back in some really dicey territory, back in what we call imprecatory prayer requests. I'm gonna say that again, imprecatory prayer requests, right? Where David begins to ask the Lord to destroy his enemies. Now, I am not gonna linger on this. Okay, because I've, we've already covered this subject. So if you're visiting today, I'm really sorry. Um, but we covered imprecatory prayers and we answered the question, uh, should we pray in this way? So I, I looked it up. If you want more information on that subject, it's recorded on our website and on YouTube September 10th of last year. We talked about that subject. So if you wanna go take a look at that, please do. What I wanna show you this morning is the two requests, first in verse nine, and then in verse 15, they frame this section of the poem. And what's interesting here is what David refers to as he makes these imprecatory requests. And again, that word simply means he wants to call down God's judgment upon his enemies, imprecatory, okay? Each one of the requests he's gonna make connects with a divine judgment from the past, from a story recorded in the Torah. So, so David is digging into his own scriptural knowledge here as he prays. So look at verse nine. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues or confound their speech, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. What does that remind you of? Confound their speech. Very good. It's likely an allusion back to Genesis 11 when the arrogance of mankind on the earth at the Tower of Babel forced God to come down and, and judge them by doing what? By confounding their speech, dividing their languages so that they would scatter all around the world. So David asked the Lord to do this. Lord, get into their meeting places, into their strategy meetings and confound them. Cause them to quarrel amongst themselves. This is what he's asking for. By the way, if we have the historical context correct, God actually answered this prayer. Because later in 2 Samuel 17, you find that there, there does become a division of opinion within Absalom's camp. He has these new advisors. One is our guy Ahithophel. The other is a man named Hushai. And they, they argue, they provide different advice to the, or to the new king, to Absalom. And guess what? It's that dispute that causes Absalom to take the wrong course of action and ultimately his rebellion fails. So God actually answered this prayer. 
Drop down to verse 15 now. Here's what else David asked for. Let death come deceitfully upon them or take them by, let death take them by surprise. Let them go down alive to Sheol for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. Does that remind you of anything from the Torah? You think of Korah's rebellion from Numbers chapter 16. You remember the story? 250 elders of Israel come together to oppose Moses, right? It's a betrayal of Moses' leadership. And they come and they oppose him to his face. And so the text says this, this is what happens next. They get instant judgment. The text says this, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households, all of Korah's people and all of their possessions. Listen, they went down alive into Sheol with all that belonged to them. And the earth closed over them and they vanished from the assembly. David is appealing to God to do something like that, to do something miraculous. And guess what? He needed it. You guys have to understand the odds were stacked against David out there in the wilderness. Absalom was coming with an army and it didn't look good for him. He needed a miracle. But you know what you begin to see here in this verse? The turning of David. You begin to see his faith coming on display. He looked back at God's word, back at God's promises, what he did in the past to save his people. And he says, Lord, I need that right now. I'm asking you to do something for me that you've done in the past for your people because I'm in great need. So you're beginning to see that type of faith rise up in David here. Now, before we get to the solution to David's problem, um, and, and by the way, the, the, the question is this, how do we deal with betrayal when it happens? Just a quick clarification. It's really important. When we talk about a subject like betrayal, definitions matter. What is betrayal and what isn't betrayal? Because we can sometimes confuse this. First of all, betrayal is not just having your feelings hurt by someone. That's really important to say. What David is describing here in this psalm and what we read about in 2 Samuel is a true personal betrayal on the part of Ahithophel, a man who had been his friend by his side as an advisor, but then becomes a declared enemy and actively works to harm him. That is true betrayal. But sometimes in the church, we get hurt by a careless word that somebody says. And that's not betrayal. Got to understand that. A careless or insensitive comment. That's an offense that we either have to overlook in grace or confront in love and, and, and talk that through and be reconciled to one another. And the reality is there's always going to be times in the church where say this nicely, people who are working to tame their tongue are still working at it, right? It happens in every single church. They haven't gotten there yet, and sometimes they speak before they think, and that's when we go back to biblical principles and we talk about resolving conflict in a biblical way, but that's not betrayal. Gotta understand, think the best of your brother or sister before you start throwing out the B word and say, oh, I've been betrayed. Make sense? The other thing that we might misinterpret as betrayal is when a brother or sister comes to you and confronts you with hard truth and points out sin in your life. And that can be hurtful because nobody likes hearing that and their accusation may be accurate, it may be wrong, it may be somewhere in between, but it's in moments like that, again, we need to think the best of this person who has come to us and realize that there is a place for that type of, of confrontation and love in the kingdom. In fact, it's required of us. Doesn't mean it's betrayal. Sometimes we misinterpret that. We're like, oh, he came to me and told me that I was in sin. Well, he's betrayed me. 
No, no. It probably means he cares about you, that he loves you. And the key, of course, is that it's gotta be done in a spirit of love, right? Not for selfish reasons. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs says. And that's an important principle. So if a brother or sister comes to you in love and out of concern for you, it's not betrayal, it may get sticky, right? It may be hard relationally. You might need to bring somebody else in to help mediate that. But those types of things are important in the kingdom. Remember that the true opposite of love is what? It's not hate, it's indifference. If people don't care for you and they see sin in your life, they're just gonna go, eh, not my issue. That's not love, is it? That's indifference. But if they care for you, they're gonna come to you and they're gonna talk to you about it. I know that's hard. No, none of us likes this in the church, but it's not betrayal. I once read, uh, how many of you guys know who Oscar Wilde is? That's an old school name. Okay, playwright, right? Definitely not a Christian. But he once said something really, really wise, and I've, I remembered it, and I looked it up last night. Here's what he said one time. He said, a friend does not stab you in the back, but a friend is not indifferent towards you either. You know your true friends because they care enough to stab you in the front. <laughs> not quite Proverbs 27.6, but... <laughs> But you get the point, right? When we care for each other, we come to each other and we say, look, I, I, I love you enough to, to point this out. And that's an important principle. Okay, now, as I hinted at earlier, Jesus himself dealt with a true personal betrayal, just as David did, right? And this is so, it's so amazing to think about. And if you've been betrayed in your life, truly betrayed, take solace in this, take encouragement in this, that even the most perfect man who has ever walked the earth suffered betrayal. So if you thought, I'm the Lone Ranger, I'm the only person that's ever happened to, I didn't deserve it, Jesus was betrayed. So take solace in that. He was struck by this very same kind of painful wound. Judas had shared meals with him and had traveled long distance with him and had enjoyed sweet fellowship with him. Jesus had discipled him and cared for him. He had invited him to that Passover table on the night that he was betrayed. And John tells us in John 13, quoting from Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And so Judas sold out Jesus for a price. He handed him over to death. And then as we know, he had the audacity to go up and kiss him on the cheek and call him rabbi, even as that was a signal to those who came with him that that's the man to arrest. Whew. So so when you think, oh, Jesus can't possibly understand what I've gone through, think again. Think again. Now, it can sometimes be hard to receive that as an example. Um, I hear this a lot, and I get it. People say, well, Jesus was sort of a unique human being. So, so do you have a better example for me? Like somebody I can, you know, Jesus did everything perfectly. Well, what about a human being like me? Well, let me give you an example. We often talk at Oak Hill about a man named Charles Spurgeon, right? I love to quote him because, first of all, his sermons are so insightful and he's so quotable, right? He's just got some amazing, amazing messages. But it's not often that we, we go beyond those, those citations in his sermons to Spurgeon's actual life. And if you don't know about his life, he suffered greatly in many, many ways. He suffered great betrayal. And he wrote a lot about it. In fact, he wrote a whole commentary on Psalm 55 because it's so connected with his life. And, and just so you know, this is what we're talking about. 
In his day, Spurgeon was involved in a public quarrel that has gone down in history known as the downgrade controversy. If you're bored and you want to look that up, it's a really interesting story, the downgrade controversy. And it was a dispute that he fell into with the Baptist Missionary Society of England, of which he was a very prominent member. So these were, these were, these were associates of his. These were fellow ministers of his in this society. But he had become concerned over about a 10-year period about how the Missionary Society was drifting from doctrinal truth. And in his writings, he called it a downgrade. That's how that term has come down to us, a downgrade in doctrine. And he saw a whole bunch of essential orthodox doctrines sort of getting fuzzy and squishy. And he couldn't just stand by and allow it to happen. We're talking about things like the infallibility of scripture and the nature of the atonement and the existence of hell and this weird movement at that time towards universalism among Baptist circles in England. Now, Spurgeon had spent that, those 10 years doing everything he possibly could to stay in fellowship with this society because most of the disagreements he had with them, and he had a huge one between Calvinism and Arminianism, but he didn't want to break fellowship. So he was, he was living with differences in secondary doctrines. But by 1887, it had become too much for him, and he withdrew from the Baptist Missionary Society. A year later, he withdrew from another organization, the London Baptist Association, which he himself founded. He withdrew from it. And here's the thing, he wanted to do it quietly. And that's a great principle, by the way, to withdraw quietly so as to not become a divisive person. But guess what? They chased after him. And it became very painful for him. In the process of withdrawing quietly, he was viciously attacked by his fellow Baptist ministers in England. And it, it, it deeply wounded him. The Baptist Union Council charged him publicly with making false allegations. They passed a resolution to, to censure him. And the resolution was written by a very close friend of his. One of the guys that he himself... Spurgeon had come to his defense multiple times, and now this guy was writing a resolution to, to censure him. And it really hurt his feelings. Soon after that, Spurgeon felt it was necessary then to, he had, he had founded a college, and he, he felt the need to reorganize that college and to redraft a stronger doctrinal statement for the college. And to his shock, 80 of his students, students that he himself had mentored, revolted against him and withdrew from the college and it broke his heart. He wrote to a friend, I cannot tell you by letter what I have endured in the desertion of my own men. And this conflict sadly defined the last five years of Spurgeon's life. He was tired, he was discouraged, yet he pressed on, he continued to preach and to write and he wrote about Psalm 55 because it was so personal to him. Here's, here's part of what he wrote about Psalm 55. He said this, None are such real enemies as false friends. Reproaches from those who have been intimate with us and trusted by us cut us to the quick. And they're usually so well acquainted with our peculiar weaknesses that they know how to couch us where we are the most sensitive and to speak so as to do us the most damage. In other words, they use their knowledge of you and turn it against you. Imagine that. Somebody who you've shared life with, ministered with, now turning everything that you've shared with them against you. He goes on. 
The slanders of an avowed enemy are seldom so mean and dastardly as those of a traitor. We can find a hiding place from open foes, but who can escape from treachery? That's a man who's been deeply wounded by betrayal. He also said this at a conference before his death, and I love this. He says, for my part, I'm quite willing to be eaten by dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future shall vindicate me. And that is true. The future did. More on the end of a story in just a moment. But again, if you've been betrayed, and especially if you've been betrayed in the church, rest assured that you're not alone. It happened to Jesus. And again, if you want a more human example, it happened to what most people consider one of the greatest preachers of all time. Okay. Let's get to the critical moment in the poem now. Look at verse 16. This is the turning point of the psalm. You're like, enough of the diagnosis. We get it, Jeff. This is really rough. Okay, what do we do about it? Verse 16, David writes, as for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon. In other words, all the time, right? Don't we use the phrases, we say morning, noon, and night? Basically where that came from. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur or groan and he, the Lord, will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for there are many who strive with me. Better translation, there are many who are arrayed against me. Now, the New American Standard is really wonky on verse 19. It's, it's, the NASB is just weird on this. So I'm gonna read from the CSB so that you get the, the point here. Verse 19, God, the one enthroned from long ago, will hear and will humiliate them, Selah, think about that, because they do not change and do not fear God. So David starts, as for me, the, the pronoun is emphatic, right? This is the moment where he turns. He turns from, from the, the, the anguish and the pain and the crying out for God's judgment to absolute confidence in the goodness and the justice of Yahweh. Look, look at how certain he is. The Lord will save me. He will hear my voice. He will redeem my soul in peace. He will hear and will humiliate my enemies. And the battle certainly will come his way. And again, it didn't look good for him. But you see here, the first day, I love this. David expresses absolute freedom in petitioning the Lord with groaning and even with complaining. Have you ever done this before? You're like, Lord, I'm kind of upset, but I don't want to say too much. David says, complain groan, splay your heart open before the Lord. He knows anyway, right? He knows what's going, you can't hide from him. So he just splays his heart out there. And look at the shift that he's able to make from the first eight verses to this point. By the way, am I behind? I have, there's the shift at 16. Look at the shift he makes from the first eight verses to this point, from restlessness and pressure and anguish and fear and a desire to just escape and get away to this absolute confidence in God. It's a sight to see. And guys, listen, it's a roadmap for us. It's a roadmap for us to take note of how we can suffer and wallow in despair. We can lash back at those who have hurt us. We can grow angry and bitter about it, or we can do what David eventually did here. And that is to bring all of those emotions before the Lord with absolute honesty and petition him for help. 
Why do we do that? Why do we say, you know, I'm really hurt, but you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna turn inward and just, I'm just gonna be a pain in the neck. I'm just gonna sit in the weeds down here and, and be miserable and groan and, and take it out on other people or, or, or scheme and plan about how I'm gonna get back at somebody who's hurt me. Or we can take it to the Lord. Again, note, David doesn't hold back. He just splays his heart open to God. He brings all of the tears and all of the anguish to him. Guys, when I read this, this is the type of prayer life I aspire to. I am not there yet. And I hope you will as well. This type of brutal honesty before God and petitioning him for help. Now we have to get to verses 22 and 23 before we're done. David's gonna come back to these two important principles. Number one, you gotta go to the Lord in prayer. And number two, you've gotta trust that he is the one who's gonna judge righteously. Because that's above your pay grade. But he will judge righteously. Verse 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will do what? Sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. What happened to Ahithophel? Do you remember? I almost, it's a tough one. What happened to him? He hanged himself, just like Judas. His life was cut short. What happened to Absalom? The rebellion died and he died with it. Prayer was true. Now, let me finish the story of Spurgeon real quick. Here's what Spurgeon wrote about these two verses. In fact, I've got it on, on the screen. He says, the psalmist would not endeavor to meet the plots of his adversaries by counterplots. I know you feel it. Somebody hurts me, I'm gonna hurt them back. They plotted against me, I'm gonna counterplot. Not what David does. Spurgeon says, nor imitate their incessant violence, but in direct opposition to their godless behavior, he would continually resort to his God. So Spurgeon is saying, look, the battle that we face over all the hurt that comes from betrayal or what, whatever we're going through. It doesn't come from human strategies. It doesn't come from lashing back with sharp words. It doesn't come from plotting revenge against your enemies. The battle is won in your prayer closet. That's the point. Because our flesh wants to strike back. But he says, that's how you win it. And when Spurgeon reflected on how so many of his students defected from his college, here's the cool thing. In his writings, he never denies the pain. And we shouldn't try to deny that it hurts because it hurts. But here's how Spurgeon wrote to his friend. He describes the pain of this, this betrayal, but then he writes, yet the Lord lives and blessed be my rock. That is the answer. Yeah, I'm hurting, but the Lord lives, he cares for me, and he is my rock. And this is David's ultimate counsel at the end of at the end of Psalm 55, if you want to survive the betrayal of a friend, cast your burden upon the Lord. Because I have news for you this morning. You will not succeed in overcoming that in your own strength. It's too painful. I can tell you as a testimony in my pastoral life, I had to learn that lesson. It was painful and it took me too long. So let me, let me spare you some of that pain of, of trying to figure out ways in my own strength to, to get over this and, and to find ways to scheme against people who would hurt me. It goes nowhere. 
until you release that to the Lord and let him do what he does. So cast the whole situation upon him. All of your anguish and your grief. David says he promises to sustain you. He will not allow you to be shaken. And by the way, that, that word shaken there, it can be translated from the Hebrew, is he won't let you slip away. It doesn't mean you're gonna be impervious to future betrayals or future pain or, or hurts that happen in the church, but he will not let you slip away. And ultimately, the outcome of events doesn't lie in the hands of betrayers. It doesn't lie in the hands of treacherous men. The outcome of the events of our lives, it lies in the sovereign hands of God. And that's where you have to get to. If you're going to not only survive, but flourish through the bumps and bruises of life in the church, is to trust the Lord in that. And of course, the Lord promises in verse 23, ultimately he himself will deal with the wicked. For those who betray God's people, who harass and oppress his people, God will handle that and trust that to him. And look at how, look at the last statement in the Psalm. Look how David wraps up. I love this. He's not gonna end by focusing on his enemies, right? He's gonna end by focusing on God. He says, so simply, but so profoundly, but I will trust in you. That is the final resting place of this entire poem. As for me, I will trust in the Lord. So David figured it out, right? You saw the progression from verse one to the very last statement. He figured it out. He said, I can remain in pain and anguish and I can just sit in the weeds and fall apart physically, maybe drown my sorrows in worldly things. I can try to escape, or I can cast my burdens upon the throne of grace. And here's where all of this intersects. When we cast our burdens upon the throne of grace, who hears us? Our advocate in the heavenly places before the Father who himself has been betrayed. How important is that? that he can sympathize with our weaknesses down here because he's walked in our shoes. He knows how we feel. And he's the one that then hears our prayers and attends to us and ministers to our heart. That's why the answer is in prayer and not in our human strategies. Now, there's so much more that I wanted to say this morning about getting victory over these things. And I know Adam and Jesse are over here, but what about this? Because, <laughs> because there's so many other important principles about us extending grace and extending forgiveness, yes, even to our betrayers, because we've received so much grace and so much kindness from the Lord. And those are incredibly important principles. I just don't have time today. <laughs> so if you're wrestling with this issue, if you're struggling right now, it might be betrayal, it might be something else, but you're you're struggling to let go of a bitter root in your heart. Can I just encourage you this morning? Don't, don't sit in the weeds alone. Reach out and ask for help. There are people at Oak Hill, our elder team, our women's council, who would love to walk with you through that situation and find the type of peace that David found at the end of this psalm. Please. For this morning, I'll just close with this. With the perfect example that Jesus left us for dealing with hatred and slander and betrayal, all the things that he has endured for your sake and for mine. And we read earlier in our call to worship from 1 Peter 3, but this is from 1 Peter 2. Listen to how Jesus dealt with this. I mean, this is, a, this is put this on your mirror in your bathroom. Memorize it. While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Right? And has any of us suffered as much as Jesus? Or been reviled as much as him? 
not even close. But he didn't revile in return. He didn't utter threats. What did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's the answer. And David would agree, right? Amen. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to give you a minute or so if you want to just pray on your own. Maybe talk to the Lord about something you're going through now or something that you've wrestled with in the past. Maybe you've betrayed. And again, that's something for another message. Maybe you're a betrayer or have betrayed in the past. I don't know. But have some quiet time with the Lord and I'll close in just a moment. Father, what an imperfect people we are down here on earth. You know that. And we wrestle and we struggle. And yeah, Lord, sometimes we betray others. Sometimes we are the, on the receiving end of betrayal and hurt. And uh, Lord, it's, it's hard. It takes an emotional toil on our lives. And so we thank you for your word and how practical it is, how you give us a roadmap here through David, through the life of Jesus, even through the life of a servant like Charles Spurgeon to show us exactly how it is that we can come to you and we can overcome these things for our good, but more importantly, Lord, for your glory. And so thank you, Lord. Seal these truths in our hearts. Help us to remember them well for those moments when these things hit us and we're shaken by it, Lord, to know that you will never let us slip away and that we can come before you in prayer to the throne of grace and just open up our hearts and say, Lord, help me. Help that to be our first reaction. Lord, thank you for the time to worship you together this morning, to hear from your word. I pray now that you'll attend to our hearts. Even as we sing praises to your name, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. Be with us now, we pray in Christ's name.